The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. I'm joined now by one of the most significant uh, presidents in Irish history, both in terms of the changes that happened in Irish society during her tenure and also some of the choices that she made while president. But she's she's going to talk to us a bit about that. More importantly, she's going to talk to us about her new book, which is The 17 Irish Martyrs. Mary McAleese, you're very welcome. Good to talk to you, Anton. It is very strange to address a former president as Mary, but I'll try to relax into it as we go. Oh, seriously, (laughs) that's 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 one of of the great things actually about Ireland is that you know uh, that when when we leave office, whether we're president, senator, teach of tonish, whatever, those those titles go. They go to the next person. We don't hold on to them. Americans are the devil for holding on to them, and and they hold on to them for people like me too. Like when I go to America, they're the, they're the devil for calling me president, and I'm going, no, please don't do that. Um, Although uh, it has to be uh, said, though, you want- the, your office is probably unusual in comparison with senators and TDs and Taoiseach in that you are still to some degree bound by the strictures and protocols of your office in a way that they're not. I'm sure you occasionally have to hold your tongue when you mightn't want to. Occasionally, but not a lot, to be perfectly frank, um, because you are back down in the ranks again. You know, I mean, uh, that's one of the great things, again, about being president of Ireland. You, as president, you're first among equals, but you're among equals. And when you leave office, you know, you have still got your voice uh, to be used, obviously judiciously, but to be used nonetheless. Well, can I ask you, before we talk about the book, because it, it, it merits um, discussion, the, the recent events and, and the use of your voice, were you president now or as a former president? First of all, the rise of apparent bigoted violence again, the kind of thing that we saw in the 70s and 80s, where young gay men were afraid to walk the streets of the capital and walk the streets of town around Ireland, rearing its head again. It's never gone away, Anton, is the truth of the matter. What has happened, though, is that it has been really relegated to the corner, the bad boys and bad girls corner, from a time when it was almost the prevailing law of the land, you could say. Um, we, I mean, I, when, when I first got involved years ago with David Norway back in the 1970s, uh, setting up the Campaign for Homosexual Law Reform, don't forget what we were trying to do was to change a law which criminalised homosexual activity. And there are countries all over the world where that still happens, where homosexual activity is criminalised. And indeed, not only criminalised, but in some cases, um, amenable to death penalties. So that, that world of homophobia is... Uh, for a long time was the prevalent world, uh, particularly in the, uh, well, right around the world, but in the West. But what has happened in the liberal democracies, thankfully, uh, and with the advent of the massification of second level and third level education and the the interrogatory powers that it has given to individuals to analyse what their beliefs are based on, the groundlessness of sexism, of homophobia, of all those uh, isms that um, that hold us back from really um, loving one another and being tolerant and inclusive of one another as we should be. So we we are fortunate to live, I think, um, as we do in a in a really very modern and very progressive democracy, uh, where our people have been educated about human rights, about their own individual human rights, mine, my right to, you know, hold my beliefs to freedom of expression and freedom of opinion and thought and belief, but also that if I want to hold those values and principles dear to me, I have to offer them to others because they are meaningless unless they are universal. So I think that's one of the great things now. Um, And to go back to the issue of homophobia, look, 
it's out there. It's on the streets. When when my son my son was married a couple of years ago, he's gay and he uh, and um when he and his husband got married, and I was doing a kind of a little um homily at the at the uh, wedding. I just made the point about how fortunate we are to live in a place where he and his partner, his husband, can walk the streets in relative safety, but knowing too that there's always there's always the homophobe, there's always the there's always the hatred that can outcrop, but also knowing there are parts of the world he simply cannot visit. No, and knowing that it's something it's that needs safe. to be so, to be tended it, rather oh, than taken oh, for yeah. granted. There's work to be done, and honestly, Anton, I think we also need to have the kind of debate about where does this hatred come from, what keeps it going, what fails to challenge it. And I still think, regrettably, that in a country, you know, where religion plays a very, very, very big role and is a huge key influencer of attitudes, I think the churches, and I'm not just talking about the Catholic Church, I'm talking about all the major denominations, because all of them are conduits for homophobia. They all have questions to ask about whether or not and to what extent they have been conduits for hate. Well, as the priest said in relation to Kelly Harrington's marriage, there is a certain irony that Catholic priests are allowed to bless tractors, but not bless the union between two people of the same sex. Yeah, I thought Paddy Byrne was fantastic saying that, you know, because I'd love a bishop to say it. Wouldn't it be great if a bishop had the gumption, <laughs> marriage bishop, to say it? We've, in fairness, we've had German bishops and German priests say it, but no, we, we, no. But it was wonderful to hear him say that because it's the truth of the matter. When the when the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith um, back uh, the year before last came out with this. Um, uh, reminder to uh, to all of us of just how homophobic the Catholic Church is, saying that blessings for Catholic married same-sex couples were not possible. Uh, and they went on to say that, um, and they were not possible because in that situation, gay couples were not capable of either expressing or receiving God's grace. Imagine, imagine that. They actually said that in the document. It's just so offensive. Well, can I but ask? They, they actually, this... But Anton, let me, the, the, the awful thing was they said that on St. Patrick's Day. That was the week, the week that priests were and bishops were blessing pots of shamrock right, left and centre. And we have to ask the question, are they capable of receiving and expressing grace? Pots of shamrock? <laughs> I mean, how ludicrous, how ludicrous has the church painted itself into these ridiculous But then corners. explain this bit to me, because this is one of the things that I have always struggled to square from a distance about you. How do you keep your fascination with the faith and the church and canon law and all that goes with it and square it with such vocal criticism of that which is so obviously endemically wrong with the institution? Yeah, well, it's as near to go on as it is to go back, you know. I mean, that's how I feel about it. The Catholic Church is the church that I was baptised into as a baby, uh, grew up in, uh, that kind of shaped my life because I lived in a place where to be a Catholic was to be second class, and in a church where to be a woman was to be second class. So those shaped me, and they made uh, whatever kind of rebellious um, spirit I have in me, and God knows um, uh, I have that now probably even more so than I ever had in my life, um, that, 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 those are the, the, that's the place God put me. And I sort of feel that um, where, where I have the strength and the energy to see a navigable path to a better future, as I could see through reconciliation in Northern Ireland, as I can see through dialogue and reconciliation in the church, then I, I'd rather be there having me say than outside 
you know, either living life uh, without the church, which would be sometimes, I think, a much easier life, or um, living a cynical life, you know, always giving, you know, always looking at it from the outside and complaining, but doing nothing inside to change. So I just made the choice to stay. And it is a choice, honestly, Anton. I mean, it is, uh, I don't regard it as an obligation. I don't regard it as a duty, um, even though that's the, the basis upon which, you know, bishops tell members of the Catholic Church that by because we made these baptismal promises as babies, we are obliged to obey them. But, but so, would you that feel is, then that you could you could maintain your relationship with your God, but do it through being C of I or a direct personal relationship or Methodist? That it is a choice to go the Catholic route. It is. It is a choice, and I have great respect for all of those um, all of those denominations that you have mentioned, um, and indeed others, because I've spent a great deal of my later life um, studying. And I've always been interested in other religions and the, the 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 baseline of goodness and love that is at the heart of them, but which has become ridiculously toxified by um by generation after generation of a generation of abuse of religion. We see it at the moment, Anton. We can see it, for example, in Russia, where we have the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, um, you know, a former KGB agent, just like his predecessor, Alexei. Um, using, um, weaponizing God, and indeed weaponizing homophobia. Ironically, weaponizing homophobia. Actually, that, that reminds me. Did you you did an official visit to Russia? Didn't you, didn't you meet Medvedev back when you were president? I, I met Medvedev. Yes, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, did at that you, time, he was president. Yes, Putin. they were doing this the, the swapsy with the prime ministerial role at the time. <laughs> That's did, right. Did you yeah. have any sense of the building of the fermenting of the authoritarianism that now pertains in Russia? Um, probably not as intense as it subsequently became. I mean, I was fortunate to live through the Gorbachev years, and he's a man for whom I have the most profound respect. And I did think for one, you know, small moment that um, that Gorbachev's time would lead to the ending of that that huge uh, tendency towards autocracy and um, restriction on freedoms that is so synonymous with uh, Putin's Russia. Um, and I think that's the pity is that they lost the momentum that had been generated and created that openness that was created by Gorbachev. I still remember uh, when I was there, I invited him to everything, you know, when we were there, because he's pretty much a persona non grata. And um, we invited him to all the events and he came and he was terrific. But on the last event, um, he was in the audience. He was in the front row of an audience. I was making a speech. And at the end of it, he got up and he said, I have a gift to give you. And he'd nothing in his hands. And I thought, well, there's a bunch of flowers or a book somewhere. And the next thing he said, would you let me give you my blessing? And he blessed me in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I thought it was probably one of the most moving moments I have ever had. Now, there was a man who used um, a blessing as a way of love, loving and embracing another human being. And, and that is the Russia I would love to have seen emerge you know the not the not the Russia of Kirill. I remember um, I visited Estonia when Leonard Mary was still president, and Leonard, of course, was born in Tallinn, and his family were sent to Siberia during the um, Soviet days, 
because his father was regarded as anti-Soviet. But as a young man, he had come across a man probably around the same age as him, maybe, I don't know, in school or in Tallinn, this man who um, was of Russian, 40%, I think, of Estonians are Russian. And he had come across this man who's quite hostile um, to him as a person, to his family. And when he came back from Siberia, he met him on the street and he was now a priest. And he said he his heart lifted when he saw him. He thought, oh, this guy has really softened. He's he's embraced God. He's embraced the church. And he said that to him. And the young man's answer chilled him, still chills me. The young man said to him, the KGB, tell me to join the priesthood. I join the priesthood. That young man became Patriarch Alexei, Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church. Dear God. You so mentioned you, you with that story of what you said earlier on about the, the lack of cynicism that you haven't developed any over the years. It is interesting given the book that you've written because whatever about generations of reason to be cynical, you've provided us with 500 years of reasons to be cynical. You have <laughs> 17 people who have been hanged, they've been disemboweled, they've been left out to be eaten by wild dogs all because they wouldn't resile from not their fate. Not to fate. mention boiled in oil. Boiled in oil and not to mention that one of them suffered so at the hands of her own child, one of 20 that she had brought into the world, who subsequently had her killed. The only woman. That's right. The only woman among them, Margaret Ball. I love her. I can't can't say I love her story, but um, because her story is just so sad. This woman who was well born in the sense that she was born into, she was born into relative wealth. And her her father was a mayor of Dublin, Lord Mayor of Dublin. Her son, Walter, was a Lord Lord Mayor of Dublin. But they're unfortunately born as indeed was his brother. So they're a wealthy family, well-to-do, and yet she ends up um, in in prison in the most dire of circumstances for one reason and one reason only, that she she refused to become uh, a Protestant. Um, at that time, it was rammed down people's throats. It was a political thing. It was about it was about politics, that awful, toxic, dreadful mix of politics and religion, um, where, um, you know, during that that period of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation in Ireland, um, the people of Ireland were oppressed by um, a, a colonial power which insisted on its right to tell them what to believe. And I, I like to think about her that she was just a feisty woman who said, nobody's going to tell me what to believe. Oh, did she I what? believe what I choose to believe. <laughs> and, and her son, of course, Walter, who was very ambitious personally, he, um, he, he, uh, he as many people did at that time, um, he, he became a Protestant because it was the thing that guaranteed him not just his own personal physical safety, but also guaranteed him that he would get up the greasy pole. <laughs> you know, he would he would get up the ladder and become the mayor and, and become an influential and important person. That's one of the things that's so fascinating throughout the whole book, though. Yeah, but you see it in all of it, that so much of it is about political intrigue, so much of it is about the furtherment of economic interests, and that you have a lovely separation before you get into discussing the 17 different martyrs, where you talk about those who were effectively zealots for a cause, and those who were actual quiet believers who suffered and died, though they didn't want to. And you have the 17 stories of them, some of them riveting, some of them desperately sad. I mean, the, the bishop and the priest... Bishop O'Devany, oh, I think it was. Bishop O'Devany. People will know of O'Devany Gardens, you know, in Dublin, um, which is named after him. And um, But he was actually in, from Northern Ireland. He was from the diocese that I was born in, the diocese down in Connor. And I'd never heard of him until I started to research the book, to be honest. I never heard of him. Uh, and yet when I researched the story of him, it's so tragic. That elderly man so badly abused um, and, and treated so badly, as indeed were 
all Catholics in Ireland at that time, and in particular all priests and in particular all bishops. Um, to be a bishop and to be a priest on the island of Ireland at that time was to invite persecution. And persecution that wasn't just intellectual and religious, it was physical, it was miserable. And that's what happens when you, you know, when you take the 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 poison of um of political hubris and vanity and dare to dare to believe that this is what God wants you to do, that he wants you to make other people miserable, that he wants you to tell other people what to think, what to think and how to think. Um, and and as, as is happening currently in Russia, I mean, we've seen Patriarch Kirill uh, say that um, God is on the side of this, what he regards as a just war. And one of the reasons that he has offered, if you remember, he made a speech a few weeks ago saying that, um, uh, you know, that one of the things that he was trying to prevent happening in Russia was gay pride. And that justified declaring war on Ukraine. I mean, seriously, isn't that so twisted? That, I mean, I I grew up thankfully believing there was such a thing as a loving God. One of the great, one of the things that, one of the things that keeps me. You asked me about staying in the church, and and I still have a very, very, you know, I've, I have a really strong faith in the Christian gospel, and 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 in any and in any religion that tells me that love is the way to resolve all our human frailties and problems. Because I've seen it with my own two, you know, I've seen it with my own well, eyes I, and I've felt I, its power. As I said, it is remarkable that you continue to be so uncynical given the book that you have just written. Mary McAleese, <laughs> it has been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks again. Thank you very much indeed, Anton. Lovely to talk to you. Leave diesel behind with Toyota Hybrid Electric and cut down on fuel costs and harmful emissions. Our self-charging hybrid range has helped make Toyota Ireland's best-selling car brand in 2021 and 2022. Models are available for delivery now, including the Toyota CHR and the Corolla range. So talk to your dealer today about flexible payment options. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. Built for a better world. Terms and conditions apply. Best-selling claim based on most recent monthly figures.